You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. We have been going chapter by chapter through this book in the New Testament, uncovering and learning about the history of the the first church. And so today we find ourselves, uh, Paul entering into the area era, uh, of Athens. And so if you were here last week, we looked at Paul's very word-centered ministry in Thessalonica and Berea. And, and now we're seeing Paul go into a very different context as he goes into the city of Athens. And so I had originally intended uh, to uh, really cover all of Paul in Athens all the way uh, through the end of the chapter uh, with Paul's address at the Areopagus. But I started working on the sermon and found out I had two instead of one. And so this is in very much uh, one sermon in two parts that you'll be hearing today. And so we're going to first look at Paul's ministry in Athens uh, by looking at verse 16 through verse 21. And then you'll have to come back next week to hear part two, where we hear Paul's address at the Areopagus. But I want to help us think through this morning how we as Christians engage the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me read God's word for us. I'll pray, and then we'll get started learning what God has to teach us from his word this morning. So starting in Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what these, this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the gospel. We're grateful that we have been saved by your grace through faith alone. And Father, we know that Jesus is the King, the cornerstone, the Lord over all. And Father, as we seek to proclaim this truth to our world today, Father, I pray that we would learn from Paul's example here in Athens of what it means to engage a very pluralistic world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we really do live in a pluralistic age. Now, what does that mean? Well, it just means that there are a lot of different competing ideologies, religions, views of the world, kind of in in one place, one locale, one area, one culture. And so there today are many different competing philosophies and views of the world in our our, uh, United States of America today. And so this presents really some very intense challenges 
for us as Christians who seek to proclaim the, the unchanging truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to, to do evangelism. But there are a lot of challenges, and of course, with challenges come great opportunities as well. So many of you might be familiar with the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. You at least have heard his name before. Francis Schaeffer is known uh, for his book on books on apologetics and evangelism and the Christian faith. Maybe you watched back, I think in the 80s, his film series, uh, How Then Shall We Live? Maybe you're familiar with that. But I, the, the biggest impact that Francis Schaeffer had wasn't his publishing ministry, but it was in fact his ministry of hospitality. So he and his wife, Edith, created a shelter for people in Europe and in Switzerland called Labrie. And Labrie was a place where they, they kind of opened up their home and, 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 and invited anyone to come and, and stay with them for any sort of length of time. It became a, a place where travelers would come for rest and for, for spiritual conversation. So those visiting, of course, uh, liked a free and cheap place to stay, right? So they would come and, and stay, but they were met with the warm hospitality of the Schaefers and then the typical long conversations in the evening with Francis Schaefer and other guests sitting around the table conversing for hours and hours and hours up until midnight most often about spiritual conversations, about worldview issues, and so Labrie was this unique place where there was truth being proclaimed, but mixed with this warm conversational hospitality and community along with it. So Labrie really exemplified so much of this. And let me just tell you one story of a guy who stopped at Labrie like back in 1971. This is a guy named Mark Milo, and he was a 17-year-old at the time a Zen Buddhist who visited Labrie after hearing about this place on the beach in Greece from a friend. And so he makes his way up to Switzerland and he, he decides he's going to crash at Labrie for a few nights. And on the first night, apparently there was a lot of people there. And so Mark ended up sleeping on the floor in the hallway that night. And Francis Schaefer had to step over him early in the morning to go and get to the restroom, right? So, so Mark's sleeping on the floor. The next day, Mark is listening to a tape that someone gave him there uh, by a guy named Os Guinness. Perhaps you've heard of him and his writings before. Um, Os Guinness uh, had a little lecture called The East No Exit, which challenged Mark's Zen Buddhist view of the world. And of course, that evening, as typical at Labrie, everybody got together around the table and, and started having conversations about faith, about our view of the world, about morality. And so they start having that conversation, and, and Mark just voiced his quite strongly his Buddhist convictions, particularly his vegetarian eating habits. And he just kind of lambasted all those who there who are Christian for their barbarous nature of animal-eating Christianity. That's Mark's words, not mine. And so, so he just starts railing about how Christians just don't care about the world, they don't care about the environment, they don't care about animals, right? And so Schaefer, of course, listens very carefully, and, and Mark was feeling quite confident about his, his zeal, his boldness, about his defense of his beliefs. And Schaefer said, you know, Mark, you've You've got a very consistent way of looking at the world. Buddhism tends to provide that. But he said, Mark, your way of viewing the world is not a view of the world that anybody could live out consistently. Mark, it doesn't match reality. It doesn't match how you live in day-to-day -day life. It's impossible. 
And so Mark listened to Schaefer's rebuttal, and of course he didn't, he didn't really respond too much of it. But after he was leaving the meeting, everybody got up and was making their way out the door. And as Mark was walking out, he got stung by a wasp. And the, everyone there just watched as Mark took his hat off of his head and started beating the snot out of the wasp, killing it until it was dead completely. And of course, everyone kind of looked at Mark with that strange look of irony in which he just plainly contradicted everything he just said in that meeting. Mark later recalled the irony of that time. He said, the flagrant inconsistency of my reaction with animal patronizing discourse of a few moments earlier. Mark would eventually convert to Christianity and ended up becoming a missionary to France. So, so like Schaefer, and the reason I bring Schaefer up is I think Schaefer in so many ways helps us learn how to engage with a world today that operates and thinks very differently than us. And it helps us learn how do we bring the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ to bear upon the lives of people who don't share the same set of worldview convictions that we do. So Schaefer isn't the first one to realize that we need to do this. In fact, we are not the only Christians who have lived in an age of religious pluralism. In fact, the Apostle Paul did just that, preaching to both Jews and Gentiles. And so the diversity of religious beliefs and philosophies in many ways melt together in this pot called Athens. And this is where we see Paul engaged in ministry here. And as we see Paul doing ministry in Athens, we see his remarkable versatility as an evangelist, as he engages pagan philosophers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the sermon summary. If you want to jot it down, we must learn to engage a pagan culture with the gospel of Jesus. We must learn to engage a pagan culture with the gospel of Jesus. So while Paul was in Athens, remember he's, he's kind of exiled. He's waiting for the arrival of the rest of his companions and the rest of his missionary teams. And so Paul takes residence in one of the most influential cities in the ancient world. You don't have to know much about ancient history to know that Athens is a, a pretty big deal. The city of Athens had produced some of the, the best and brightest minds across every facet of human culture, even into this day. Right? Athens had playwrights. Athens had historians. It had pioneers of medicine. Athens produced great artists. Plus, Athens also produced one of the most important minds in human history, the mind of Socrates, who would go on to mentor Plato, who would go on to mentor Aristotle. I mean, the ideas of just those three Greek philosophers continue to shape Western civilization unto this day. So by this time, Paul arrived into the city. Much of the former glory of Athens had corroded. But nevertheless, the city still had this prestigious legacy and, and influence upon the world. So Paul is waiting. He's waiting for his missionary comrades to come and join him. And he desires to engage this epicenter of Western intellectual history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as he begins his work... I think we can learn a great deal from Paul in terms of how we engage our culture with the gospel. Next week, we'll look a little bit more carefully at what Paul says to such a culture when we see his, his, his sermon, his, his gospel presentation at the Areopagus. But today, let's think through just how does Paul even engage this sort of cultural environment? 
So first, let me show you three of them. First, the posture of our engagement ought to be indignant compassion. The posture of our engagement is in indignant compassion. So as Paul waits in Athens, look at what the text says in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So as, as he looked, he saw idolatry was everywhere. At the highest point in the city of Athens is the, the Parthenon devoted to the, the Greek pantheon of gods, right? Particularly the goddess Athena, who in Greek mythology is the goddess of wisdom, and who, of course, was the patron god of the city, hence its name, Athens. Nearby that, that area sat the, a, a temple to the god Ares, the god of war, upon a small hill. So the Roman name for Ares was, was Mars, hence the name Areopagus, or Mars Hill. This is where Paul would give his speech later on in Athens. So idolatry in this city was absolutely everywhere. It was celebrated. It made up the, the very foundation of, of the city's culture. And within the pervasiveness of idolatry around the city, the scripture tells us that Paul was provoked by what he saw. The, the language of provocation in a lot of ways calls back to God's response to Israel's idolatry in the Old Testament, that it provoked wrath towards their sin, their idolatry. But, but not only was wrath provoked as God saw Israel's idolatry, but also so his compassion and his tenderness. And so as Paul is doing ministry in the city of Athens, on the one hand, he is angered by the lostness of the city. He is, he is appalled at the false gods and idols that they devote themselves to so promiscuously. And he was zealous for the glory of Christ, that, that the God alone deserves praise. And this pollution of idols that just sucked up the entire culture of the city greatly frustrated him and angered him. But yet at the same time, Paul was filled with compassion for the Athenians. As we see Paul engage here in the city of Athens, he is not bombastic. He's not antagonistic. He's not aggressive or militant in his evangelism. He has compassion for them. Paul wants to persuade them that Christ is the king and for them to repent of their sins, to repent of their idolatry, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I've chosen to call Paul's posture of ministry here in Athens using the phrase indignant compassion, which are two words you probably don't think ought to go together. But I think Paul exemplifies that here. So what do I mean by this phrase? Well, well, on the one hand, as you and I do ministry in our American culture, we're going to see the idols and sin of our culture. And there ought to be a righteous outrage we feel in our bones as we see it. This anger towards our culture ought to stir within us because we have a passion for the glory of God. We have a passion that God alone deserves the praise of humanity. And so when we see our fellow citizens and fellow image bearers of God trample over the glory of God with their idolatry and, and make God appear worthless, our hearts ought to boil in rage against such idolatry. You see, the Christian worldview that has dominated our Western world for so many centuries is now shriveling away. And now we will feel 
here in 2020 and beyond, we are going to feel an increasing indignation in our souls against the worthlessness of idols that litter American life. As Christians, we ought to feel that way. That when we witness the, the carnage of the abortion industry and the millions of lives sacrificed to the idol of convenience and choice, our blood ought to boil a little bit. And when we see the, the breakdown of God's design for the family and the rise of no-fault divorce or the pandemic of fatherlessness, we can't help but speak up about those issues in which we see. And when we see violence and when we see injustice and the racism that defines so much of American culture, our gut ought to churn in indignation and response. And when we see the sexual trafficking of, of women and the pervasiveness of pornography or the titillation of promiscuity in Hollywood, we ought to become indignant when we see it. You see, our culture's idols should not make us indifferent, but it should make us indignant. Those are two very different responses. Not indifference, oh, I don't care, but indignant. There's something not right about this. You see, I, I fear how so many Christians have made their bed with the spirit of the age and tried to worship Jesus alongside the idols of the culture. So instead of outrage against American idolatry, so many Christians find themselves participating in the worship of those same idols along with the rest of American culture. And as Paul looks around at Athens, Paul isn't indifferent, he is provoked. He is indignant. He is disturbed. Paul could not stay silent as he witnesses it. So you see, if we aren't indignant against the idols of American culture, we will feel no need to speak out about them at all. We're not going to preach Christ. We're just going to keep our mouths shut. And as you look upon the lostness of our city, as you look upon the lostness of our country, do you feel compelled to speak out because you are zealous? for the fame of God's name among the nations. So we speak with indignation. We feel that this posture of heart, but yet that indignation has to be met with compassion, doesn't it? It's both. We speak with compassion. Paul was provoked by Athens' idols, but as we see him engage the pagan city, he's not doing so with, with hatred or anger. In fact, we see just the opposite. He spoke with gentleness and compassion. We see him trying to persuade with, with reason and thinking. He, he, when he gets to the Areopagus, which we'll, again, look at more carefully next week, we, when we see him get there, he doesn't just start berating them with their idolatry, with his favorite new hashtag, right? That's not what he does. Rather, Paul, he tries to make a case for the gospel trying to find as much common ground as he can with these pagans, and he's trying to persuade them and win them over to the truth with compassion. So too, we ought to have this posture, as difficult as it can be to have both indignant and compassion together in our hearts as we approach the world. Now, if you go on social media, if you are courageous enough to enter into that vortex of human depravity, Right? If, you, if you make your way there, you're going to find a lot of indignant Christians. Right, They're everywhere. But most of them lack compassion. Such social media warriors tend not to care about anyone but their own egos. And they're just looking for ways to 
score points on their opponents with verbal slam dunks that make their opponents look dumb or silly in comparison to them. And so they utilize sarcasm, they utilize satire and belittlement, and they make them evangelistic weapons. But notice, that's not what Paul does when he's engaging pagans in Athens. He doesn't do so with funny memes or Babylon Bee posts. Such tactics tend to exalt ourselves and belittle those who disagree with us. It's not helpful. And so as you look upon our culture, you have to ask yourself, right? Do you you have pity and compassion upon those who are lost? Does the, the lostness and confusion and spiritual blindness that engulf American culture, does it cause your heart to weep? Sadly, I think many Christians act like the prophet Jonah. They're eager to to sit outside of the city, hoping for the fire of God to come down on Nineveh. And as we do, we become calloused and hateful. And then we get angry at God that he might have the nerve to show pity on such people. You see, perhaps the best thing for a lot of us as followers of Jesus to do is to disable Facebook for a while And instead of trolling supporters of abortion online, go volunteer and serve abortion-minded women at the Choices Pregnancy Center here in town. Instead of posting your political pontifications about how you think we ought to fix the economy, why don't you go take a night and lead a Bible study with some homeless men at the Hope Station here in Wilson instead? And instead of watching the echo chamber of your favorite news program after dinner, Turn it off and go cut the grass of your Democratic neighbor and ask how you can pray for him. Right? This is the stuff we have to do. We have to cultivate compassion with those who are lost and seek to genuinely persuade them out of love for the grace of God and with the grace of God. We, 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 there's a place to be indignant against the culture's idols, but we have to have compassion on lost souls who need the gospel. Pastor Tony Morita said this. I think he he gets it spot on. He says, if your life doesn't reflect both sweetness and thunder, you will either be a coward or obnoxious when it comes to sharing your faith. Some people, for example, are good at the ministry of truth, but they are terrible at the ministry of tears. You see, when we lack indignation, you're not going to speak up. You're just going to be indifferent. You're not going to say anything. When you lack compassion, you're not going to persuade anyone. You see, as followers of Jesus, engaging this new pagan American landscape, we must have a posture of indignant compassion. Second, let's look at the location of our engagement, which we see in verse 17 is the synagogue and the marketplace. The synagogue and the marketplace. So as we're engaging our culture, we see that Paul engages the city. And again, the location here is really important. He went to the synagogue and he went to the marketplace. Now, this is typical Paul, right? This is what Paul does when he goes into a new city. He first targets his evangelism to the Jews in the city and the synagogue. Because, of course, as he's doing evangelism, it's a good starting point because there's so much common ground, intellectually speaking, that he has with the Jews in the synagogue. So he, he begins his gospel ministry there. And we have already seen in Acts Paul's method of preaching the gospel, evangelistic sermons to a Jewish audience. If you need a a crash course reminder, go back to Acts chapter 13 and read Paul's sermon to the Jews in Pisidia uh, at Antioch in Pisidia. So Paul shared with his Jewish brothers 
so much common ground, right? They, they are monotheists. They believe in one God. They have a shared conviction about the truthfulness of God's word. And they have a shared hope in the coming of the Messiah. So because there's so much common ground, it made it relatively easy for Paul to engage in those sorts of evangelistic conversations with his Jewish family, aimed at convincing them from the authority of God's word that Jesus is the Christ. That's the sort of thing we see him do in Thessalonica and Berea as he's ministering to Jews in the synagogue. But similarly, there are people around you and I today in the South who have a relatively basic understanding and Christian view of the world, don't they? They may be vaguely monotheistic. They might have some sort of respect for the Bible. And with those who have religious background, we have, we have a good deal of ground in common as we seek to share the gospel with them. And there are a considerable number of cultural Christians who know just a bit about Jesus and the Bible, right? Maybe they grew up in church, but they've not been born again. They've never repented. They've never trusted in Christ. And so those people, there's great work to be done among those who are marginally, nominally religious or Christian and, and helping them really understand what the Bible says about salvation, about what it means for Jesus to be king, to be Lord over all. And we should preach the gospel, to those in our own synagogue, if you will, that we have a lot of intellectual common ground with. But we also see that Luke tells us that Paul is doing ministry in the marketplace. That's another important location here. The marketplace in ancient cities, that was the center of commerce. It was the center of political discussion. It was the center of the, the religious paganism that dominated Athens. And we see that Paul is in the marketplace Paul is sharing the gospel with Gentiles who have a very different view of the world from his Jewish family, as we'll see in just a little bit. The Greeks believed in many gods, not just one God. And the Greeks had very different and conflicting philosophies, as we'll see in just a little bit, between the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so sharing the gospel with, 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 with the, the Gentiles in Athens, that was a lot more challenging as the distance between Paul and the Athenians is such a wide gap. But Paul didn't just say, well, pff, it's too difficult. I'm not going to even try. No, we see Paul engaging. It didn't stop him from sharing the gospel. And of course, next week, we're going to see how Paul presents the gospel to such people. And we're going to look carefully at his approach at the Areopagus. But we see that Paul in Athens, that his, he's able to adjust his method of sharing the gospel from one group of people to the other. Paul was an incredibly versatile evangelist. So when preaching to the Jews, Paul could open up his Old Testament and he could preach Christ from the Old Testament and he could make his case for Jesus being the Messiah from God's word. And when preaching to the Gentiles, as we'll see at the Areopagus, Paul would start with more natural law arguments, and then he would introduce them slowly to the, the revelation of God and his word and the resurrection of Jesus. So again, just real quickly on this point in terms of location, let me make just two quick points of application. First, we should share the gospel with everyone. I hope you know that, but let me reemphasize it, right? Everyone needs the gospel, and we should seek to reach everyone we can with the gospel. We don't just share Jesus with people whom we are most like-minded with. It's not the way evangelism works. Rather, we should seek to save cultural Christians who are lost and unconverted, as well as the skeptic secularist 
And we should do so with the same urgency and the same effort, right? Everyone needs Jesus. And so we preach Christ to everyone. Second is we should adopt different methods of sharing the gospel depending on who we are trying to reach. Now notice we're not sharing a different gospel, but we're sharing the same gospel and we're presenting it and convincing people with different sorts and types of arguments. You see, in the last several decades, Christians have systematized evangelistic methods, particularly in the 70s and the 80s, early 90s, with with evangelistic programs that make it really easy for people to learn how to share Jesus. And they have been incredibly helpful. Now, some of you have been through such evangelistic training programs. I've been through them. I've been helped by them. But we have to be very cautious of a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to sharing the gospel, because every human being is different. And every person has different questions, different worldview that needs to be challenged and confronted with the truth of the gospel. This means that we have to seek to be as versatile as Paul when it comes to preaching Christ in our culture. So think about this for a second. Who is in your synagogue? Who are those religious people that are culturally Christian but absolutely lost that you can share the gospel with this week? But then also think through who's in your marketplace. Who are those around you in your life, in our community, who just absolutely reject Christianity that you can begin to actually have evangelistic conversations with about the gospel? So our location when it comes to our engagement is very important, both the synagogue and the marketplace. But thirdly today, let's think through the interest in our engagement, particularly as we think about engaging the skeptic. And we see this in verse 18 through 21. So Paul's out, he's sharing the gospel, and as he's sharing the gospel in the marketplace, in this public forum, some philosophers hear Paul, and they hear him talking, and they sort of start sparking a conversation with Paul. And Luke tells us that these philosophers were Epicureans and Stoics. Now, you do need to know a little bit about what these two philosophical systems believe and and present in terms of how they understand the world, because they were very much uh, opposite of each other in a lot of ways, very different. And they competed against one another, and they had very different views of the world. So the Epicureans were materialists. They were materialists. They believed that everything was material. And so as they looked at the sort of pagan idolatry of Athens and Greek culture, they just kind of saw that as ridiculous superstition. And so because the material was all there is, the Epicureans believe that, well, the chief pursuit of man is pleasure, is pleasure. So they are largely adopting the modern equivalent of the philosophy, you only live once. YOLO, as the, the children say today, right? So they have this appetite for the, the finer things in life. And even today, if you hear the word Epicurean, it typically refers to someone who has a refined palate for food and wine. These are people that that live for pleasure, that believe the world is all that it is, eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares? We die. Just enjoy life to the fullest. Now, the Stoics were a little bit different. The Stoics weren't materialists, but they were pantheists. They believed that everything in the world had this divine spark residing within it. Everyone and everything is united by this divine soul. And they believed that everything was determined ultimately by fate, 
The Stoics believed that history was in a cycle, moving from order and chaos, order and chaos, over and over and over again. And because life was just an unending loop of despair, the Stoics believed that, well, all you really need to do is just grit your teeth and bear it and endure it. You can't change anything. Instead, just try to be as self-sufficient as you can, fulfill your responsibilities and duties, and just endure life. Now, while the Epicureans thought, if it feels good, do it, the Stoics thought there's nothing you can do about it, so just grin and bear it. One adopted a sort of hedonism, the other a sort of pessimism, but both philosophies, if you're picking up on it, are rather empty and hopeless, aren't they? Absolutely empty, absolutely hopeless. And variants of these philosophies still exist today, and many Americans are becoming increasingly skeptic about spiritual matters, particularly Christianity. One point of data that American psych, uh, sociologists are continuing to monitor is the rise of the quote-unquote nuns, which maybe you've heard uh, people in our society talking about this. These are people in our country who claim no religious affiliation at all. And that number is skyrocketing skyrocketing by all statistical measure. According to the Pew Research study done in 2018 and 2019, around 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christian. Now remember, that means 65% of America is Christian. They just claim to be Christian, right? That's very important. That doesn't mean all are truly converted, all really know Christ, but they just identify as Christian. But that number, 65%, is down by 12 percentage points over the last decade. Over the last 10 years, it's gone down by 12 points. And meanwhile, with those with no religious affiliation, the nuns, they are now up to 26% of Americans, up from 17% in 2009. So in 10 years, we're seeing this number make drastic increases. But the numbers are even more concerning when you look at the, the wonderful millennial generation, which I find myself a part of, right? The numbers are even more concerning. Because only 49% of the millennials describe themselves as Christian, so less than half, with four out of 10 millennials describing themselves as having no religious affiliation. Those are concerning numbers. And what does that mean for us? Trying to do ministry, gospel ministry in Wilson in 2020. Well, it means that there are an increasing number of people in our country, particularly among the young, who are skeptical about all sorts of religious beliefs, including Christianity. They operate out of a view of the world that is very different than the one taught in the scriptures. This means that we have more and more people who are like the Epicureans, who are like the Stoics in our own culture. These are people who may be interested in the truth claims of Christianity, but they are hearing us from a position of doubt and skepticism. Our country is no less spiritual today than it was 100 years ago. But when we evangelize today, we are often addressing those who are in doubt and disbelief about what we're saying. We have to understand that. This means that we have a great opportunity to preach Christ in our generation, to do so with clarity, with compassion, with sound reasoning. In fact, that's just what we see Paul do here in Athens. As we bring the good news of Jesus, we, we put forward propositions, truth claims that sound strange and even absurd to so many Americans today. But we have a great opportunity like Paul 
to reason in the synagogue, to reason in the marketplace as we proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is really important because this means that if you really want to see our generation one to the gospel, of course, we pray that God will save, but that means that that we have to start thinking much more deeply about our faith than we're accustomed to. It means that we have to really be thinking through what, what do the scriptures say? What do I believe? What are my theological convictions? You see, many Christians are so content with their immaturity and ineffectiveness that they're just no good for evangelism in our context today. You see, when Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.17 that we as Christians should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is within you, most of us, when we hear Peter say that to us, we just kind of yawn and we just go back to our busy lives, right? I don't got time to give a defense. I got my things to do. I got my life. You see, most Christians, as we saw last week, barely even read the Bible, let alone seriously engage with sound doctrine and theology. We need more Christians, more Christians who are devoted to thinking deeply about their faith. Christians who meditate on the word of God. Christians who grow in their knowledge of the gospel. Christians who know how to think reasonably and coherently and can speak persuasively to doubters about the hope of Jesus Christ. And I fear that much of the evangelical church today is so content with milk in the faith that they are very few of us who are taking up the meat of sound doctrine. And as American culture is increasingly turning into Athens, we must be ready to address the skeptic, to answer hard questions, and to engage in loving conversations about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even as we do, we have to be prepared that there will be those who misunderstand us. You see, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, they call Paul a babbler, which, as you might imagine, is a disparaging comment, right? thinking of him as mentally muddled. The original language communicates the image of a bird who's picking up scraps of intellectual thought from the gutter. That's what they think Paul is doing. As they're listening to him, they're like, man, this guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul, that guy, he's lacking coherence in his thinking. He's just some guy that kind of sounds smart, but he's just, he's just salvaging intellectual scraps, maybe using a couple big words that he picked up from somewhere, and he has really no, no logical thinking to him at all. So they thought Paul was both interesting and stupid, right, as they're hearing him. And ironically, the philosophers struggled to understand what Paul was saying. In fact, we see already that they're misunderstanding what Paul was teaching because as Paul's preaching about Christ, they think that, well, this guy's here is talking about some new deities for us to add to our, our pantheon, right? He's got this guy named Jesus who's apparently some sort of God. And then they got this goddess called resurrection as well. And of course, we know that's not what Paul's talking about at all. But that's what they're understanding. That's what they're thinking. They're, they're misunderstanding Paul, and they're applying their pagan worldview to what Paul is saying. And so Paul's got a lot of work to do to clear up. What does he mean that, that Jesus is the Christ and about the resurrection? So, so longing for intellectual stimulation and a bit of fun, they invite Paul to present his views at Mars Hill, at the Areopagus. And Luke comments here that this was not a positive thing, but this is rather some sort of vain curiosity in which they just wanted to kind of stoke their pride. And Athens just loved the new. They just loved to hear whatever new teaching was going around today. And again, Luke, I think, is giving us a word of warning, even for us as Christians, that we have to beware of intellectual spectacles. 
and the vanity of new philosophies, which tend to bubble up like frothy foam in the pressurized steam of modern discourse. They may sound fancy, they sound interesting, they look flashy, but there is no substance there. We have to be careful of that sort of vain curiosity with whatever is new. We have to have the mind of Christ as Christians, not the ever-changing mind of popular culture. But Paul takes these skeptics up on their invitation. And he goes and he seizes this opportunity to present the gospel to people who largely just want to make fun of him. And we'll look more at that carefully next week as we look at Paul's evangelistic approach and what he actually says to the Athenians. But we have learned just how Paul engaged this culture, right? We've seen that first he starts with a right posture, being both indignant and compassionate. Second, we've seen him uh, address both the religious person and the pagan, both in the synagogue and the marketplace, and that we too have to learn how to contextualize our evangelism appropriately. And third, we've seen that we must be prepared to address the interests and questions of the skeptics, those who come from a very different view of the world than we do. After all, as Christians, we believe there is one God. And as we proclaim the unchanging gospel, we have to think very carefully about how we do so in light of the questions of our generation. After all, Christianity is not one religion among many options. We believe Christianity to be true, and it is grounded in history that Jesus is the Lord who has triumphed over the grave, and that Jesus' bodily resurrection is the proof of the truth of his claims that because Jesus lives, we know that anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ would be forgiven of their sins. And the judgment that we have deserved has been paid for by Christ. And so we believe the words of Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So remember, as we preach Christ, we are preaching reality. We are preaching truth. And only Christianity provides a coherent view of the world that makes sense out of the reality in which we live. And so we preach the truth of Christ with hope and with love and with certainty and urgency. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for the gospel. We're grateful for how you brought it to us. Lord, we're grateful, Lord, how you by your spirit have opened up our minds and hearts to understand your glorious plan of redemption. But Father, as we seek to share this good news with our world today, Lord, it's becoming increasingly challenging. But Lord, as the challenges rise, so do the opportunities. Lord, I pray for us as as a church family, as individual believers, Lord, that you would help us to think deeply about how we can engage an increasingly secular world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, it will be challenging, but Lord, yet our day is not any different at all from, from Paul's ministry in the first century. Lord, even as America is rapidly turning into Athens, Lord, so does it give us an opportunity to preach Christ boldly, compassionately, winsomely. Father, help us to think through how we can engage our culture with the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.